Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the second episode of our dedicated B Corp series of Design Your Life, Business for Good. Today I catch up with the co-founder and CEO of Sendal, Australia's first B Corp certified tech company, James Chin Moody. Sendal is a major disruptor to the global shipping industry, providing carbon neutral shipping at a fraction of the price of their larger competitors. Tune in as we chat about the importance of our four purpose businesses in shaping the future his experience as satellite engineer, how it feels to be a galvanizing disruptor in the 200-year-old shipping industry. Hey, James. Uh, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thanks, Vince. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I'm in Sydney. Uh, whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Brisbane at the moment. So. Okay, cool. Greetings. Cool or hot. <laughs> it's probably hot there. It's so cool you're part of this B Corp series that we're doing. And it's, it's really cool to catch up with a, a fellow purpose-driven certified B Corp uh, person and a company uh, from around the world. Basically, <laughs> you were one of the first, I think, first tech B Corp companies in Australia. Uh, yeah, we were. So we became B Corp in 2014. So we've been part of the movement from, from the very early days. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing organization. I, I kind of wonder, it took us about four years to get certified. I don't know how long it took you. Uh, was it it's quite a rigorous process, which is obviously important? How long did it take you guys to get uh, get yours approved? Uh, so, look, we were we were probably only a year, um, but as you say, it's part of the rigor um, that's important. And and we actually built the company with purpose from day one, which I think really helped us. Um, but that being said, all businesses could become B Corp. So I think it's about you know really thinking about the positive impact they want to have on the world, and then how they operate, not just what they do. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing organization. We're very proud to be part of it, and um, um, I'm going to talk more about um, B Corp later uh, with you. But I'm really keen to understand your life and your upbringing. Um, wh- wh- where where did you grow up? Uh, so I, I yeah, I grew up in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I'd say I was I was always a very nerdy <laughs> nerdy kid. Um, I loved technology. I loved I loved Star Wars. I loved Transformers. Like all that stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. And in a weird way, I knew I was—I wanted to be an engineer. I love love to build things. So, um, but yeah, Brisbane boy, um, all the way through to uni. And uni, and then did you go on to study engineering then? Yeah, I studied engineering at um, at QUT, uh, and then later on, I I uh, ended up um, moving to the UK to build FedSat, Australia's first satellite, in thirty years after that, wow. um, and then came back to Australia and did my PhD in innovation theory at the ANU. 
Jeez. Wow. <laughs> um, so, so because I wasn't nerdy enough, I, I figured innovation theory just you know. <laughs> yeah, still building on yeah. that. Um, so, is your family a similar background as well? Uh, my my father was an engineer. In fact, I'm, I'm uh, on, on my father's side. There's a lot of engineers. I was actually named after um, J. J. C. Bradfield, who was the um, engineer behind the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Story Bridge, to name a few. Um, but on my mother's side, interestingly enough, uh, they were all. Um, artists, um, painters, photographers, uh, uh, different, different sort of different worlds, you might say. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I sometimes feel like I lean into both sides of those, um, those worlds. That's the perfect combination, though, isn't it? The, the the creativity and the engineering, the kind of the practical. Oh, I guess it's. I mean, engineering is very creative as well. Um, but engineers tend to get things done, whereas creative people tend to just be creative. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, th I think it's more about people and, um, you know, as you say, design and and sort of technical. You know what I mean? Like, de you're definitely flexing different muscles. Um, and, and it's when you can find the, 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 the intersection of the Venn diagram of both, that's, that's really fun. And you talked about, you very briefly mentioned the UK. So how long, how long were you in the UK for? That was about, I'd, I'd say, three years. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, really the dream job of a, of a graduate engineer, um, I was really, really fortunate that I um, did a lot of work. Um, we, we started a thing called the Australian Student Space Association when I was at university. And uh, through that, I just happened to um, interview and uh, was accepted as, as effectively the technology transfer agent um, for Australia's first satellite. It was called SEDSAT. Um, my job was to, to work with the UK company to build the satellite bus. So effectively, all the stuff that powers the satellite, the attitude control system, uh, the, the, you know, the, the telecommunication system, um, work with that and then help bring it back to Australia to put the payloads on the Australian experiments. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I pretty much had the dream job of a, of a graduate engineer um, who was passionate about the space industry. Frankie, what did your dad say? He must have been proud of you at the time. Oh, I think, yes, he was, he was very proud. Um, and, you know, I think we... Uh, you know, actually getting an opportunity to build something um, was just amazing for me. I'd love to be a uh, fly on the wall in your, all your conversations with your, your dad and your, <laughs> your family, who are all engineers. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, so did you move back uh, to, to, to Australia after three years because you had enough of the UK or did you finish the job? I know, to really bring the satellite back. Um, um, that was part of the, uh, you know, part of the plan, really. And uh, uh, the... The interesting thing was at the same time, um, you know, I was doing a lot of work with the United Nations Environment Program, actually. Um, one of the funny things, and a lot of folk who, who, who do stuff in space, um, well, sometimes, you know, you, you realize that we're all on one spaceship, right? Like, you know, it's a closed ecosystem mm. on this spaceship called planet Earth. Yeah. And so you do find a lot of folks start to do stuff in the environment movement. So, um, so I was doing a lot of work with the UN um, uh, and actually both on space and the environment, but then when I came back to Australia uh, for the satellite, started to get more and more passionate about the environment space as well. Is that because of your exposure to a deeper understanding of what's going on in the world? Like, is it what what kind of brought that on? I, I think that you know, it's partly it, it's funny. Space technologies, you know, really unlocked a lot of the environment movement. Right? There's a lot of you know through remote sensing. Um, through you know understanding the planet better, 
and the, the convergence of the sort of digital view of the planet and the natural view of the planet was really interesting. Um, but now I think there is a deeper thing of, uh, you know, just really, um, there's, there's something around reflecting, you know, and thinking bigger uh, that you do when you're, you know, when you're sort of dreaming about, you know, going outside the, the boundaries of our atmosphere. Um, and, it, and it does cause a moment of, of deeper introspection. Um, and, and, and then, you know, uh, realizing that we're not, you know, you can look in front of us and it feels like things are boundless, but frankly, no, we do have a, a limited set of resources and we need to make the most of it. And how did the relationship with the United Nations come about and what did what was your involvement in that? So I was, um, uh, I was very fortunate in some ways. I'd uh, uh, Just at university, we set up, uh, we were doing lots of tree planting activities with, with Greening Australia. And um, I, I happened to be, uh, I was also then invited to become part of the United Nations um, uh, uh, Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And so um, those two things, and through a, a different connection through the United Nations, I suddenly was introduced to the United Nations Environment Program Youth Council um, and, um, and, and found a way of turning the work that I'd have done earlier at university and started to expand that and, um, yeah, join those two worlds together, you might say. You don't do thing by ha- things by halves, do you? <laughs> Uh, it's, um, I, I find it's, it's interesting. It's finding problems. At that time, it, the, the, you know, what we were trying to do was look at issues of things like sustainable consumption. And young people actually do um, set a lot of the trends around consumption, in particular future consumption habits. And we're seeing that happen right now, where sentiment, you know, is shifting, particularly around climate change, um, very, very rapidly. You know, five years ago, or, or, you know, let's go back to 2015, when we launched Sendal, we were, we were 100%, 100% carbon neutral from day one. Mm-hmm. But weirdly enough, we didn't talk about it much because many of our many of the folk we were, our merchants um, immediately thought that was a that was made made us more expensive when in fact we were actually cheaper than the national postal monopoly. So we were cheaper and 100% carbon neutral, and still are. But we didn't we couldn't talk about the carbon neutral piece um, because it just sent the wrong messaging. These days, everything's shifting, and you know we're seeing sentiment. You know, 70% of 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 folk actually take values into account when they make purchases. Um, that's even higher when you talk about younger generations. You know, the whole the whole world is shifting, um, and it is pretty much a lot of that work on sustainable consumption. Like, how can we use consumption as a way to drive sustainability? Well, it's it's an incredible shift, isn't it? I mean, we've noticed that since uh, in our business as well, um, since the fires and obviously with COVID, etc. There's a massive focus on brands coming to us. With absolutely determined to do the right thing, to do good in the world, and how to get their kind of purpose kind of aligned with their team, etc. Um, I find that really exciting, and and obviously it's vital. Um, but it's great that you know yourself is kind of thinking that that far ahead previously uh, about this and, and creating an organization that really, I guess, you know, questioned the whole way that we deliver um, we deliver around the world. So how, how did how did Sendal come about? Where, where did the name come from, for example? Uh, so Sendal first started off as, funnily enough, not even a logistics company. We were a, a, a giving platform um, where people could give things away um, and, and therefore, you know, help extend the lifespan of that item. Um, so we, you know, we, um, we, we built, you know, a, a vibrant community. I think we had at one point 50,000 folk transacting on that. 
but very quickly we realized the biggest sort of impediment or the biggest pain point for giving was getting the items from one place to another. Mm. And so we, we dug more and more into the logistics piece and, and, and so I'm, this is now around 2013, 2014. And, and, and now in hindsight, it's, it's really interesting because I, I realized we probably chose one of the most difficult use cases for shipping you could imagine because we were, you know, it was one thing at a time. It had to be done uh, very affordably. It had to be door to door. It had to be extremely convenient, right? And we're doing it for an audience that really was not a, 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 a full-time shipping expert, right? And so we, we ended up this use case of like small scale shipping um, became really important to us because it was actually the thing that would allow the marketplace to grow. And we just kept on working on that problem. We found ways of doing it by stitching together the idle capacity of existing networks to get the price down, to increase the convenience and so on. And until we were, we were basically built a, a, a logistics network for our own purposes. Um, fast forward to 2000 and the end of 2014, uh, a really interesting thing happened in around uh, the end of the year, around you know, peak season. And what happened there was that all the eBay sellers actually started to use what we built, not to give things away, but to sell stuff on eBay and then to take advantage of the shipping solution. So they'd sell it, imagine Vince, I'm selling you something and then immediately both of us hop onto this other platform that we built and I'd pretend to give you the item away, give you the same item, right, to take advantage of the shipping. And what we realized at that point was, yeah, why, why would they spend so much time doing it? It was because we'd actually, we were 50% the price of Australia Post, right, for that, that, that delivery. We were 100% carbon neutral, we were door-to-door, -door, we so we were more convenient, you know, we'd often get there faster. Like in all these dimensions, we were actually better than the incumbent. And that was when we decided we'd experiment and see what it would be like if we, we pulled what we built and turned it into a standalone business. And... Um, you know, within that was the middle of 2015. Within a month, uh, we were doing more volume on that standalone business than we were on the on the the, 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 the giving platform, and it just kept on growing from there. So it's where, where did the name Sendle come from? You asked. Um, it really came from uh, you know when we thought about what are we trying to do. You know, we, we realized it was the small businesses who were getting the really rough end of the stick. Like as a as a consumer, I don't I don't really have that much to send. You know, now and again, I will. But if I'm a small business, they're the ones who are paying a lot more than they should and they're getting a lot less than they deserve as a result. And so we, we sat down and we said, what does a small business need from shipping? And what they need is, you know, simple, reliable, affordable, right? And, and we now argue sustainable. And just so happened that all those, you know, LE words, simple, reliable, affordable, um, just resonated really well with Sendal. And that's where the name came from. Ah, that's nice. That's cool. And, and does a giving platform still exist? No, it was a um, really difficult and, you know, and a bit important life lesson in some ways. We were, um, you know, we're, we're now in the middle of 2015 and we were trying to actually run both businesses at the same time. Um, and the interesting thing was we, um, you know, I, I, you know, in hindsight, we probably weren't giving, you know, doing either one justice by doing it. And it became a really, you know, and I remember it was actually one of my co-founders and he, he actually, you know, 
uh, said something very profound. It was like, if you try to chase two rabbits, you don't catch either. You know, and, uh, and I think that was the period when we realized, you know what, we need to, um, to, to really understand. And, and, and I think, you know, I've always, from day one, it was all about purpose. It was about what is the impact we want to have. And we realized we could actually have bigger impact, not being just a platform, but why don't we be the ones who can, can basically support all the platforms out there? You know, we can promote reuse by being a giving platform, or we could actually remove the transaction cost of all the giving platforms and all the, you know, the marketplaces, all the reuse, you know, every single thing we could do. And so, our, you know, our purpose, I think, evolved um, from, you know, being one to actually we want to be the plumbing that allows small-scale shipping um, to be simple and reliable and affordable. And that, in turn, you know, unlocks new business models around circular circular economy and reverse logistics it, it it levels the playing field between you know the folk who are just starting up a business and you know the biggest retailers in australia and so we realized that was a much bigger purpose to pursue and that was the thing that helped us make that you know that really difficult decision to to effectively shut down something that we loved and we'd worked for two years on and it's really incredible because obviously uh, from Australia trying to send things around the world is incredibly expensive. I know when we launched our book in 2014, it cost, the book was 49 bucks, but it was like, I think 70 bucks to send it to London or, mm. or $60 to send it to New York. Um, and it was just insane because obviously that affected, well, that's why we said it affected the sales. Um, but it, but it's just like, it's, it's ridiculous that it costs that much amount of money to send to send it somewhere. Um, when you're in the UK or in America, I think you can actually send things for you know, a hell of a lot less. Um, why was it so expensive here? What, what, what was it that was, um, is it just com complacency or are people just focusing on making the, the distributors making more profit? Oh, look, I think one of the things um, we may think that there's a lot of competition in shipping, but you know, particularly if you're a, a consumer or a small business, you really don't have much choice. Um, no. you know, it's generally going to be, you know, one provider that you, you think about it and that's, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, we really came to the market saying, no, there is an alternative, um, uh, that you can actually have a solution that, you know, is built absolutely for you. This is Sendle, you know, and we'll be, and because we're hundred percent focused on you and we're not trying to say, you know, balance the needs of small and big and. Because, you know, there's no way you can imagine that a big retailer is going to spend that amount of money to send a book, right? It just doesn't work. So where's that difference? The difference is because there's very little choice. And so we came to the market um, and said, you know, let's how we balance that, how we level that, that playing field. And to give you a sense, you know, you talked about your book. Um, we can now send, you know, uh, again, don't know how much the book would weigh, 250 grams. We can send anywhere on planet Earth for somewhere between 10 to to. Uh, generally $15, right? And we'll pick that up from your door and we can send it anywhere. That's, that's sort of how we, you know, how, how, how our business works now. It's amazing because we really focused on, you know, unlocking the capacity that exists, generally exists for the large business folk mm -hmm. and making that available for the single sellers or the small businesses and, and, and really making it available for everyone. There you go, folks. If you want to design your life book, get in there quick. <laughs> the cheaper to yeah. distribute. Um, what, what, are, you, are you still using the existing you know, airlines and all that uh, shipping, you know, the, the same uh, transport as other organizations? Uh, so 
it's a mix, to be honest. Um, we, we use, you know, whatever we can find to, uh, to effectively one, you know, it's certainly a supply. So we, 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 you know, we, we, everything, single thing, we make sure we can deliver. And, um, and then after that, it's really about performance and, and then, and of course, getting the price down. Um, I think that the benefit of what we do is we really work with folk who are generally only serve very large customers. Right, and we help those those network providers to serve a smaller segment of the market by by really taking away a lot of pain from them. Um, you know, we uh, you know in terms of you know supporting the customers, um, you know, customer support, billing and collection, all those things. On the flip side, we help our customers unlock the network capacity. Um, so you know, pre, a lot a lot did change. Um, COVID COVID's actually changed a lot. You might say, you know, in the past for international. There was a lot more space, as you can imagine, on on, on airlines that mm-hmm. you know had people on them, and then of course a lot of it stopped. Um, but uh, but really, we, we think about it as you know how can we get the best possible service for our customers, and we have an entire team that's you know thinks about that every day. Yeah, I guess COVID also uh, it was incredible how it's changed people's um, spending habits. They kind of so much people were buying online more than ever before. That must have affected uh, your, your network as well. Yeah, I mean, COVID was a, um, you know, look, it's on one level, it's, uh, you know, it's been a, 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 such a such a volatile time. And, you know, it's been such a difficult time for everyone, um, you know, on personal levels and how businesses work and so on. At the same time, we saw these, these two really interesting trends happening, which was um, the first thing that happened immediately after you know, I think it was almost two years now, um, in March, um, you suddenly, after an immediate downturn, you suddenly saw so- folk buying so many things, right? They, you know, it was almost like the, the amount of, um, the amount of number of buyers, particularly new buyers to e-commerce, just went, you know, crazy. Um, I think it was, uh, one, one report, it was sort of four years of progress in the US in the space of two months in terms of the growth. So we saw this first trend of like more and more folk buying online and then follow maybe three to four months later, we saw this other interesting trend of more and more folks selling online. Yeah. Um, and so, and we saw that as sort of more parcels per merchant to begin with. And then of course it sort of normalized. So, so yeah, we've seen, we've seen a big shift as a result of, of COVID. You might say one of the you know biggest experiments in moving digitally we've ever seen. Right? Yeah. I mean, people talked about it for a very long time, and it wasn't until COVID hit that people started to take it very seriously and see it as an opportunity or a necessity. There's so many people that I know that just started their own shop online and doing very, very well out of it. Um, and it's, I guess it's, it's liberating, isn't it? Yeah, on one level, um, again, it's, you know, there, there's, there's huge opportunities. It's also very challenging. You know, we've, we've had, you know, we have many stories of folk who, you know, would get all the foot traffic and then, in some ways, by necessity, they had to move online, you know. Um, but yeah, but here's the interesting thing: suddenly, their market is not their local neighbourhood; it's the whole country, yeah. or maybe even the whole, world. the whole world. And so, I think there's, you know, there, there's definitely opportunities. But I don't want to pretend that it's been smooth sailing because I don't think it's really been smooth sailing for anyone no. um, during this time. But it, you, you're you're obviously an incredibly uh, conscientious organisation. Um, that does all it can, all it can to live up to the B Corp um, you know, guidelines, and, and also you know, you know, help maintain the the the, the planet, etc. 
Um, but I guess you still would be transporting products and goods that aren't have the same kind of ethic. Or, or do you find that uh, people who use your service is actually conscientious as well? Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, and I'd say, look, you know, we're not perfect either. We're all, you know, I think everyone in the movement knows there's so much more we can do. Um, uh, I think the way we think about it is we want to reduce the harm of shipping. You know, shipping and, and e-commerce has got so much opportunity for small business, you know, particularly if you can democratize it. Um, but it's not without, and I'll, I'll get nerdy for a second, you know, the, 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 the negative externalities that you might say. And those negative externalities can be things like, you know, the carbon emissions of the shipment um, or the packaging, the wasteful packaging that it comes in and, and so on. So that's how we approach the problem, which is <clears throat> we think that, you know, um, e-commerce and particularly small business e-commerce is a fantastic thing because it can actually put food on the table of many families and, you know, send kids to school and it can increase diversity of, uh, you know, of, of the entire global market. But it comes with a cost and what we're trying to do is reduce that cost. We don't pretend to try to tell folk what they can and cannot ship as long, you know, we won't ship anything illegal, of course, and we've got other things that we won't ship. But, you know, for us, it's all about, like, let's, let's take full responsibility to carbon emissions. So that we've done that from day one. So every single parcel, you know, is, is a 100% um, carbon neutral. And the second one is now it's time to look at both upstream, other upstream and downstream impacts of our business. And, you know, and, and e-commerce uh, uh, shipping in general, e-commerce logistics in general. So, so take, for example, we, we um, you know, we, we launched compostable satchels. Um, uh, and, and we didn't want to just have a normal compostable satchel. We wanted to actually make it better than if you weren't using a compostable satchel. Uh, and we did that by, you know, increasing the weight, the, that's like the volume limit you could use and a whole lot of things. So, you know, that, that's sort of our approach to the entire, um, you might say, how, how can we have positive impact, particularly from an environmental perspective? Well, I mean, design, as we know, anything that's kind of not, not nature has been made or designed by a human being. Um, and design, as good as it is, has also screwed up the world. Um, <laughs> and what's exciting is now that the time, as people understand the potential of design, the power of design and ideas around shifting towards doing the right thing. I mean, I, I still get packages arrive or, you know, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by, you know, a massive box that turns up with like a, you know, a book in it or, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, yeah. just, it's just crazy. There's still, there's still work to be done, obviously, around um, shipping um, or packaging in general. And I think the, the interesting thing, I mean, this is, um, I really noted out around this when I was at CSIRO and um, it ended up in a book called The Sixth Wave, um, which is all about, you know, this shift to decoupling economic growth and resource consumption. Um, effectively, you might say that example is a place where we were literally shipping air. Why ship air, right? It's in no one's interest to ship air. And if we can, to your point around design, right, it's just about choosing the problem, right? Make that box smaller. It's good for good for the planet, good for the sender, good for the receiver. You know, it doesn't have as much waste. Like there's all these pieces. It's about choosing the right problems to solve. And then understanding that in many cases, if you get the business model right, you can line everything up where waste is an unsell, you know, something you're producing but not selling. You know, 
in your in your experience, do you feel like the the majority of people don't aren't aware of this, or, or is everybody aware of this? I mean, I, I'm kind of sometimes I'm amazed by some people just not even notice that that massive box that turns up. You know, they're kind of not thinking about that as a problem. They just see it as convenience. Okay, it's hard to say because I think you know there's a level of awareness now that we didn't even have maybe five years ago or seven years ago. Um, I think of that as more of a, you know, where do you spend your attention and energy? You know, the, 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 the company that's sending a small book in a large box is not doing that, um, I'm sure, maliciously or intentionally. And they're doing it probably because they're optimizing something else, right? Which is, you know, um, uh, maybe efficiency or whatever. But, you know, I think what we're learning, and this is probably back to the, the role of design, is sometimes it's about the goals and the boundary conditions you set, right? And sometimes it's about short-term versus long-term trade-offs. You know, things that might look like a, sh- a trade-off in the short term um, can often end up lining up in the long term, you know? And, and uh, because, for example, if you can, you know, if you end up with a box-cutting machine, you know, that can actually make sure that the box is always the smaller they can be, that might cost you a lot right now. But say that, you know, we know that shipping or, you know, the price, you know, the cost of externalities will go up, you might end up saving a huge amount of money downstream, you know, in time. So, so it's all about, I think it's all about understanding what are those, what are the criteria you're trying to design to and what time frame are you designing to as well. You've expanded massively and you've expanded recently into the USA. Uh, well done on that. That's incredible. And you've also raised close to $100 million as well. Um, I guess for further investment and growth. Um, what's your ambitions around uh, uh, growth over the next few years? Uh, so yes, we're you know we we're very fortunate being in, in you know proudly an Australian company, but really one that we think is is also here to serve. Um, you know the the problem exists for merchants all over the world, and uh, and again the same problem, which is merchants are paying far more for shipping than they should, and they're getting far less. Um, than, than probably the, the really large retailers. And so, um, yeah, at the end of 2019, we, we uh, launched in the US, and that's been a, an amazing journey. In fact, um, you, know, the, the, you know, our US team is, is unbelievable, and, you know, we're seeing exactly the same, same challenge, like, you know, um, market demand, you might say, um, uh, in the US as well. So, and, you know, we're... Stay tuned. We've got some big plans. I, I can't share them yet, but uh, you know, our goal is not just to be an Australian US company. We're, we're starting to look bigger and bigger. And, and congratulations too on, on it's announced that you were one of the top 100 companies to work for in uh, Seattle. Um, I'm not sure how many companies are in Seattle. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> but uh, is well, that, yeah. <laughs> well, Nike's there too. A lot, a lot of um, big organizations are there. Does that feel cool? I'm not sure if cool is the right word. Look, one of the things we've done from the very beginning, and I think this is important too, you know, it's not just about, you know, or for me the two important bits of any business is one, understand why you should exist, right? That's the purpose piece. Can you clearly articulate the positive impact that you want to have in the world? Like why should your business exist? Um, but the second one is it's not just about the goal, it's also about the journey, right? And, you know, so who, who do you want to be on that journey with you and how shall we, shall we be on that journey together? And, and so we've, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things we started from sort of day one 
uh, we had the, what we called the five H's um, within Sendal, and they were in order, humble, honest, happy, hungry, and high-performing. And the reason why the order is important is because I, I love working with folk who, you know, are high, high performers, but ultimately that they have to be more humble than they're high-performing, mm. right? And it's, you know, you want, you want folk who are hungry, but they have to be more honest than they're hungry. And we found that creating, you know, um, it, it's interesting, they even cascade, right? Humility can actually create honesty. Honesty can create positivity. Positivity can create ambition. Ambition can create performance. And so humble, honest, happy, hungry, and high-performing in that order is sort of the way we, you know, we built our team. And, and I, I think what's interesting is folk, you know, these are the attributes that also make teams work really well together. And, and you know, I love working with every single one of our team members because they're just incredible, awesome individuals. And bring incredible, awesome individuals together to solve a, a meaningful problem, you know, that's a huge difference. And how, as a leader of the business, how, how do you share that purpose and, and the values, et cetera, across the organization to keep everybody on the same page? Um, I think we're not the sort of company that, you know, tries to stick posters on the wall or anything like that. It's <laughs> You know, I think we're, you know, it's interesting, Sindel's a lot of very analytical folk and, you know, um, in there is, you know, I think it's more, uh, you know, we we hire to the five H's, you know, I think a lot of folk join us for our purpose and, you know, because we're a B Corp and because we, yeah, we want to have an amazing business, but we want to have an impact as well, right? There shouldn't be a trade-off, you can have both um, because you're all about lining up your business model with the positive impact. Um. So yeah, it's really about joining those uh, those two pieces together, mm. um, and then and then yes, of course we talk about it. We talk about the five H's. We you know uh, talk about our purpose. Again, in fact, when we start our planning process, every time it always starts with purpose, and then moves into long term strategy, and then medium, and then you know what's what are the goals. How many people work for the organization? Uh, we're up to around two hundred now. I mean, it's logistically. It's a logistics business, obviously, but it seems like uh, it must be. There must be so much legislation and you know financial challenges around the world um, to deal with. I mean, how, how did that? How do you manage that? I guess it, I mean you must have all kinds of experts in there. Yeah, I think it's it's like everything. I, I mean, we you know one problem at a time, <laughs> and you break up problems into other problems. This is where it's interesting. A lot of systems. Thinking and systems engineering, I think, goes into to what we built um, because we are, um, you know, effectively trying to, you know, uh, you know, the beautiful thing about what we do um, as we as we build our network out and make it available to small businesses, it can scale really, really rapidly. Um, and so we we always have that in mind as we build stuff. How did you come across uh, B Corp? You said it was in the early days when you were starting the organization. Um, did you come across them prior to starting the, the business, or when you were looking for, you know, the you know making sure you had the right um, criteria built into the organization? It's funny. I, I remember going to uh, it was called um, Rio Plus Ten. It was a Joburg Summit called the Earth Summit. It was back in the environment movement days. I think two thousand and two, and that was the first time I, I, I remember there was a presentation there. And you know, the environment movement was all sort of business is bad. You know what I mean? There's, you know, it was environment versus business. There was this whole thing there. But I do remember the presentation um, made the case. It's not that business is bad. It's that there's good business and bad business. 
But more importantly, what is a good business from an environmental perspective? It's not one that maybe makes a lot of money by consuming resources and then donates it. It's the business that actually deeply aligns in its business model with the environmental impact that it wants to have, or the positive impact that it wants to have. So, you know, a business that removes waste as it, as it operates, um, that finds, you know, excess capacity and utilizes that to, you know, to, to, to effectively improve the efficiency of the entire system, right? So that, for me, day one, that was sort of like, um, you know, struck me, and I think it's a it's a great place to begin because it, it helps you create businesses that I think, you know, really can last. I think the second thing, um, though, you know, to, to the B Corp movement, so when I was starting a business and, you know, with our, my, my co-founder and, um, you know, it was, is there a way of actually working, you know, building this into the business from the ground up. And what I loved about the Bitcoin movement was that it, it's not just about accreditation. Um, it's, you know, that's important that you have a, an external party that can look at you and, and hold you to account. It was actually, I loved the idea that, you know, you actually start to work your purpose into your constitution, mm-hmm. right? Um, that you work the idea of stakeholders into your constitution, that when you're making decisions, you know, you should be trying to make those decisions with all stakeholders in mind. And those are the things that, you know, really endeared the B Corp movement to me that, you know, it's sort of a much more holistic way of thinking about what is, what is a, you know, what is a, what is the business of the future? What is, what does a transformation of, of business look like? It's, it's business that is, you know, stakeholder, not just shareholder. It's a business that understands its purpose and goes for it. And then it's a business that will constantly look at its operations and try to find ways of being better. Well, and we, we found that too. I mean, we've been in business for 27 years, I think it is now. Um, but always keep looking at the business going, how do we run a better business? You know, that's kind of, you keep looking at that and try to improve on things. And what I, what I was amazed by and, and surprised by and actually relieved by was that there were guidelines around policies, et cetera, um, how, to, how to manage your team and, uh, you know, maternity leave policies, all that kind of stuff, which really, really, for a business, often you're kind of wondering what is the right thing to do. Um, and a lot of organizations aren't doing the right thing uh, when they could be. And it's not that difficult, but it makes a big difference to the general well-being of your, of your business and your organization and your people, more importantly. Um, as well as doing good things for others, um, it's great to, to be doing that for your, your, core, your core business as well. I found that really incredibly helpful. Kind of in a way, it kind of teaches you to how to run a business better. Yeah, and that's you know, it's about where you spend your time and attention. You know, that sort of is, and 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 by being a B Corp, that absolute yes. You know, at the very least, it's causing some of your attention to start thinking about those things. And the more you can work it into the fundamental operating model of your business, the better, I think. Mm, I guess you must have been one of the early ones. I mean, there's only like four thousand. Uh, B Corp businesses around the world at the moment, which isn't a lot in the scheme of things. Uh, there must be you know, millions and millions of businesses around the world. How many were there when you started out? Gosh, I, I don't actually know the number. I should find that out. It's like a handful. Um, and, you know, it's been great to, you know, I, again, the thing I love is that uh, there, there is a B Corp ecosystem, you know, where, um, uh, you know, we, we do provide shipping services for B Corps. We, uh, we purchase from B Corps. Uh, we, one of our investors is a B Corp. 
uh, you know, it's the, uh, our superannuation, preferred superannuation provider is a big deal. Like there's all these things you can mm. do as you're part of the system, which I love. Mm. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, I heard that a potential investor once asked you to DB Corp, <laughs> DB Corpify. <laughs> um, they obviously completely misunderstood what your business was about. I mean, how did you respond to that? Yeah, it was interesting. It was, um, you know, a very early term sheet we got, and one of the terms was to not be a big cop anymore. And we, uh, I think the, the most interesting bit was, um, and again, you know, understanding that it was a new thing and what does it mean? And it's, um, but it was interesting that we hadn't really had the conversation at all. And it did say to me that um, more than anything else, that we probably weren't aligned, um, you know, in terms of ambition and values and, and a whole lot of pieces. So, um, so we ended up turning that down. That must be uh, an easy decision. Well, I don't know. It was actually a very difficult decision because, oh, well, when you're, involved. yeah, I mean, when you're, you know, in the in the early stages of startup, um, you know, fundraising is probably one of the most difficult things you do, and you've never done it before. So, in a weird way, it was a, you know, it's a different, very difficult decision. Um, but like some of these very difficult decisions, you know, if you go right back to fundamentals, um, yeah, as you say, then it becomes clear. And in hindsight, it's probably. You know, it was a it was a great decision. Probably one of these company forming decisions, where you know it was a that that fork in the road piece for us as a business. So on you know in hindsight, it's like you know very very proud of past James, but you know past <laughs> James at the time, um, it was a tough decision. It panned out okay. I I, mean, I love what you said the other day. You said in the past um, on being eighty percent good to one hundred percent of the market, or one hundred percent good to twenty percent of the market. Yeah. Um, can you unpack that? Yeah, I think, look, this is, this is an interesting design choice, actually. Um, and uh, it's really, you know, our entire business is predicated on the fact that you, you most most of the time you do have to make a choice, right? Do you want to be a mostly good for everyone or do you be really absolutely fantastically good to someone? And uh, we made the decision that, you know, it was a small business, and um, that was some, you know, the group that we wanted to do, and that's fine. But let's be a hundred percent good at them because when you do that, you can actually outperform the big incumbents that that really are trying to to, to be sort of good for everybody. Um, and it's really fascinating that where that translates is the little choices you make. <clears throat> Often there's a lot of trade-offs in your product. In your um, a, an example, uh, I'll, um, you know, is you know. Uh, if you're if you're a, a beginning shipper, you've never shipped before, and you just sold something online, you need you need everything to be as simple as possible. You want simple flat rates. You want weight breaks. You know you want you want to know how much is this going to cost to send nationally. Great, simple, because I need to set my pricing and my shipping and all that sort of thing. If you have an entire shipping department, right? Suddenly you want you you love complexity, right? You've got the ability to do modeling, right? So the pricing tables are different. And what happens, you know, you've got to make a choice, right? In that case, you're trading off complexity and maybe, you know, some sort of efficiency for simplicity and um, speed. And so, you know, all these things happen. And that's, that's what, if I unpack it, you know, it's about saying, you know, know who you're here for. And this is where having a purpose also helps us, you know. Our purpose is shipping that's good for the world. And it's all about leveling the playing field for small business. So, you know. That's our, that's who we build for, and then be laser focused to build for them. Shipping, obviously, 
is an old term. It's obviously it's not all sent by ship. I mean, what what is the percentage <laughs> sent by ship versus by plane? Uh, very very little in the e-commerce world. I think there's different types. Um, sorry, from B to C. Very little in the B to C world. There's still a lot of stuff that goes by ships, but that's more about supply chains in general. Uh, okay. The post office must uh, uh, not uh, be great friends of yours. What about other like other courier services? I mean, they must be going. Hang on a minute. What's this? What's this sandal here? It's gonna. It's highly disruptive to us. Are they changing oh. themselves? Or are they just still going about what they do in their way? Yeah, look, I think um, in some ways, uh, you know, we work with a lot of um, other, other, you know, uh, network partners. Um, and, you know, we have wonderful relationships with them because we're actually helping them and bringing value to their business. Um, my, my firm belief is in a business like ours, unless you're bringing value to our customers, our merchants and their customers, and providing, bringing value to our network providers, and this is long-term value, then, you know, really you're, you know, you're, you're, you don't have the right to earn a margin. You don't have the right to have a business. So we're very focused on doing that. Um, unfortunately, there is there is a national postal monopoly in Australia, a functional monopoly in place where there's a massive, you know, amount of market share. And, and ultimately, whenever you have that and you don't have, and you have so much concentration of a particular market, it just ends up, you know, I'm a firm believer that competition's great. And so we're here to, to, to vigorously compete. Mm. What advice would you do you have for other businesses looking to become B Corp certified? I, I'd say, um, I mean, it always depends on the st- size of the business, but you know, the earlier you do it, the better, mm-hmm. uh, the easier, mm-hmm. um, particularly because you can actually, you know, um, build, you know, um, you know, build a lot of the things into a business, like your purpose, like your practices, like how I'm thinking about it. Um, just makes it easier. So I'd say that and. You know, while we talked about the beginning, it take it may take a while, and a lot of that, um, again, it's easier when you're small, but a lot of it's actually really good work. It's work that will actually improve the business and create value for the business in the long term. Yeah. And like any investment, the earlier you make that investment, the bigger the dividend. You know, in the future, you know, future you will be thanking pre- present you for, for for the work you did. Well, I mean, what what role do you see B Corp, uh, its network, etc., business globally and internationally, um, playing in the next five to ten years? Yeah, well, I think um, it's a it's a funny thing where uh, I mean the B Corp movement's been growing, you know, incredibly quickly. Um, in a world world, I think this is it's not it should it'd be great if it became the rule and not the exception. You know, that the businesses who take full responsibility of their supply chain and, uh, you know, who take stakeholders into account when making decisions. So those are the businesses that are going to be built to last, I truly believe. And, and so I think we're, you know, um, we're seeing, we're seeing discussions on stakeholder capitalism. We're seeing discussions on, uh, you know, uh, purpose-led growth. We're seeing all these things. And so I just see that, you know, in a, in a good way, um, business is transforming. Um, to be more that to, 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 to really take this seriously and, and the business the big cool movement will follow. Mm. It's it's like a lot of organizations that come to us uh, uh, in the last couple of years. After years and years of us trying to push for people to become more focused on their purpose and being more sustainable. A lot of companies obviously now are coming going, we want to be sustainable, show us how and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's interesting how that is now just becoming the norm. It's just part of being a good business and a good organization and a good person, you know, living and working on the planet. 
Um, yeah, I guess B Corp will just become, you know, th those standards will just become the norm in, of, of running a good, a good organization. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. Um, you know, and hopefully this is, uh, you know, there, there's you know, incredible transparency that we're seeing around the world these days as well. Um, yeah. You know, into the way businesses operate. Again, it's just not it's not just what you do; it's how you do it. Yeah. Um, and and again, that's part of you know. I, I look at some of these things and say, you know, what's the wonderful thing about being 100% carbon neutral? Even buying, so take for example, take buy your shipping from a 100% carbon neutral shipping provider. Well, you've actually, from our perspective, we've um, de-risked the business from when there is a price on carbon. Because there will be a price on carbon one day. We're seeing carbon markets all over the world. So our business is de-risked. Um, we've helped some of our providers in Australia move to 100% renewable energy for their shipping, right? And so, you know, again, we're now de-risking the business from fuel excises and fuel surcharges, right? Because we have no fuel surcharge. So, so it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's all, I think this is all just basically creates value for the long term. You joked at the beginning of the conversation about being a nerd. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is that? You, were you always like labeled that as a young kid or what? Oh, I don't know. It's, um, I mean, I'm sure I, 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 I was a nerd and, you know, um, uh, and, and, you know, I really did love it. I, I do think though these days, you know, if you can, there's, you know, in some ways it's almost like where is a badge of pride, you know, that I love getting into things deeply. I love solving problems. I love technology, yeah. um, but I also love working with people, right? And, you know, build and working with a team to get something done. And that's cool too. So, yeah. Well, you're playing an incredible part in, uh, in all of that and making the world a better place as a result. Um, thank God you're doing that, which is uh, it's amazing, setting a new example. Um, what about other people listening in, you know, younger guys uh, and women who are thinking of this as a, engineering as a career? Um, obviously, it's gone in a direction. Did, I mean, did you expect it to go in the direction that it's gone for you? Like to, to end up being mm. a business leader, starting an organization, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I think um, what I loved about my engineering degree was, you know, it's still it's an amazing toolkit you know, that you can apply to solving problems, which is great. Um, I mean, we are finding, and, and frankly, you know, in some ways, engineers can apply those disciplines in lots of different areas. You find engineers in business, in marketing, in finance, in, you know, uh, and engineering, of course. Um, same way, business leaders can come from a lot of places, right? They can come from the creative industries. So, so I don't think it's necessarily that engineering and business have to go together. I think it's more about, um, you know, interesting is like, how can you have your, have an impact, right? And in your particular way. And then what is it, what is it that, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, was I going to be an, you know, I don't even know, expert, you know, deep into logistics, you know, no, never would have. But I found, I think we we're very fortunate. We found a really awesome problem to solve that could have a huge impact on, you know, hundreds of thousands, not millions of small businesses out there. Mm. Right, that's and, and and so you know that's the piece where I then, as an engineer, um, you know, makes me excited, you know. But then I tap into my other, other half of my brain, and and I know that I can't do it alone. And so that's where you then say I, I really want to work with people. Well, that, I was going to touch on that because it's kind of not, not all engineers are are 
confident uh, like you are or natural leaders? Where where did you get that leadership qualities from? Um, and look, I don't think neither do they have to be. And, and I think that, again, I, you know, I, I'm, I look at the what our dev team does and our developers, and there's no way, you know, uh, they're, they're amazing. And, and, I, and I think about, like, every single person has, you know, different skills and different pieces to bear. So, I don't know, leadership's a funny thing. Um, it's a... I look at it as I, I realise that the problems that I'd like to solve are problems that, you know, require more than one person. Um, and, and so, therefore, you start thinking about how do you, you know, how can you work with others? And, and from that comes maybe a concept of leadership. It's, it's a difficult thing. Um, uh, I think if you, the more interesting bit is like, you know, what sustains you? Um, what, are you what are you passionate about? And, and then what skills do you need to actually accomplish that, right? And, and there'll be different, different ways that folk accomplish that in different, different domains. My head's always full of ideas and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing a whole bunch of different things and I get distracted and a new idea comes along for something completely different. How do you stay focused as a person uh, running an organization like this and you don't start thinking about uh, other, other businesses and other projects and things like that? Or do you? You probably do, but because um, uh, that kind of that can be quite distracting, can't it? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd say this has been an evolution for me as well. I started, I talked about, you know, um, having to shut one business that we love dearly. You know, that was all a lesson in focus. Um, and I definitely, I look at 10 years ago, I was dabbling in so many more things than I am now. And in fact, right now as a startup, you pretty much only have one thing you can do, which is the startup. Right, that's it. Uh, that and making sure you're a good member of your family. Yeah. Um, but really, I think the, so the question of focus, my solution, it's not, a, I find, I always find it hard to say no to stuff. Um, but the easier way to say no is to have a great big yes to say, you know, for something else to say yes to. Right? Mm-hmm. So much easier to say, no, I can't do that because I have to do this. And, and so one of my sol- solutions has been always to try to find the, the great big yeses because that helps. Um, and then, you know, the other thing we, particularly for big decisions, um, there's a bit of a discipline that we have in our, you know, in symbol and uh, we call it, you know, which is hell yeah, right? You know, there's, there's actually three answers to every question. Like if I say, Vince, do you want a cup of coffee? You'll say, you can say yes, you can say no, or you can say Hell yeah, right? I need that coffee. Yeah. And funnily enough, it's the third type for the, for the big decisions, right? Mm-hmm. That you want to get to hell yeah for them yeah. if you can. For the little ones, it should be yes or no, right? Really simple, but the big ones. And, you know, it's interesting that we, we talked about, um, you, know, take, you know, getting investment, right? The B Corp piece of that story we talked about before was enough to make it not hell yeah for me. Mm. Right, and that makes the decision easy. So, so if you're somebody who wants to do a lot of things, or are making lots of decisions, having to make lots of decisions, the first question is: What are there any decisions that are really important, particularly ones that are irreversible or difficult to reverse? And then, could you? I, I found that that was a really great way to, to sort of not tempt me to say yes to everything. It was like, is this a yes, or does it have to be an actual absolute hell yeah? How much of that is the, the logic of logistics versus the feeling uh, that gives you the hell yeah? Well, I, I, I like the idea that um, 
you know, the Kahneman, you know, type one, type two thinking, you're thinking fast and slow that when you're, when you're doing hell yeah, you're actually trying to engage both your, your sort of analytical brain and your pattern matching brain, mm -hmm. right? Like that's the, it's sort of the head and the heart mm -hmm. is what you're trying to do because both will actually give you, you know, um, you know, potentially what, well, you know, it's when they give you different signals, which is where there's danger. Conflicting. You know, so recruitment, you, you think about recruiting and, you know, there might be, I really need this role filled, mm -hmm. right? That might be your head saying, do it. But if your heart's not in it, right? Like, you know, because you don't, your pattern matching is saying, I don't think they're the right person. We might not be able to work, or whatever it might be. That's, that's where using hell yeah is fantastic because it can, can sometimes, sometimes your, your analytical brain can be wrong. Sometimes your, your emotional brain or your, you know, your pattern matching brain can be wrong too. So it's like, what do I have to do to get to where both of those are lined up? And, and what does that feel like, that hell yeah moment? I mean, is it, do, do you, and, and does it last? Does that hell yeah continue? Do any of your hell yeahs not work out how you thought they oh, might do? Yeah, I mean, lots. <laughs> but, but I think that the point <laughs> is, like, you know, lots of things don't work out when you do it. But the point is that... Um, I'd say that you're more likely to say that, that it's the difference between false positives and false negatives, right? Like by making something hell yeah, you are hopefully less likely to get a false positive. And if it's a big decision and a irreversible decision or whatever, often, you know, the cost of a cost of a false positive is a lot more than the cost of a false negative. Um, I'll, get, I'll make a tangible, um, you know, you, you, so you're, you're starting up and you've got a tiny team, bringing the wrong person to that team, right? That can actually have the cost of not bringing them in. Could be, yes, you're going to be delayed. The cost of bringing them in, you know, and they're not the right person for the cultural fit you want or whatever it might be. And, you know, that can actually be much more costly. Set you back years. And so, yep. And so hell that's no. why, hell, and, and, but, but again, you might be only up to yes. Because that becomes, you know, because the other thing is, the moment somebody joins your team, you're responsible to to make sure that they are doing the very best and reaching their full potential and everything, right? So there's there's lots of implications there, and so it is about, yeah, I think it's the difference between false negatives and false positives. Where do you want to set that bar? But at the same time, you got to be careful if you if you try to maximize everything, right? If you can't maximize stuff, you you've still got to have a bar. Right, and you got to get across that bar because otherwise you'll just slow down. So it's it's quite a delicate thing. Does does the hell yeah have to come from you? Is are you the final person that says hell yeah, or like, or, or like what happens if you agree uh, to someone else's hell yeah? How do you feel? Like, yeah, well, I mean, ideally, same, like when you have your own idea and you go hell yeah, I'm going to do this. It's different to a collective one, isn't it? Yeah, well, and, and frankly, the you know. The more folk who are hell yeah about something, like the more confidence you're building. But also, listening to the one person who says, "I'm not hell yeah," is can sometimes be an amazing signal mm. because they're seeing something that no one else has seen. So, you know, it's not a way. It's not about trying to, you know, um, it, it really is a way of eliciting, you know, um, the the things you might not be able to see by yourself. All the things that, you know, again, even within yourself, that the analytical brain, you know, doesn't see, but the pattern matching brain does for some reason. And you've got a niggle and you keep thinking about it until you work out what that niggle is.
Does anybody ever say to you afterwards, hey, you know what? I didn't really mean hell yeah. <laughs> I said I, I, yeah. I find you think someone's in line with you or on the same journey, and then you find out afterwards, well, you know, I just said that. But I didn't really, I wasn't fully committed. Um, yeah, look, I think there has been times where it's, you know, we, uh, you know, you're doing, you know, the, the, the key thing for a team is, you know, we try to, you know, you're saying that because you truly believe, hell yeah, like, let's go. Yeah. Or is it that, you know, uh, you're tired <laughs> you need to make a decision, right? Yeah. It's like really hard, really hard. How, how do you um, keep well? How do you, how do you, you know, run this incredible organization, uh, which is obviously incredibly complex, a lot of people. Um, how, how do you keep well in terms of your own health and family, et cetera? Uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it starts with priorities and realizing that there is a uh, family comes first. Mm -hmm. um, is always the thing that we say with every single member of the team. And, you know, we've been like that from day one. In fact, um, my co-founder and I, Sean and I both started uh, when we had sort of a one-year-old each. So we've been this whole journey, you know, with our families growing as we, as we grew. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's the first, um, but I think then the next is, you know, how do you have deep, you know, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint and you have to sort of behave that way. So, you know, uh, yeah. How can you look after your health? You know, I like to, I do a lot of walking, um, you know, jogging sometimes too, but I actually like phone calls while walking. Mm. you know, and uh, make sure I'm covered up, got lots of sun, sun protection and, you know, go and have that meeting walking and you can do 10, 20,000 steps a day if you do it that way. There's lots of things you can build into your, your existing routine to, to try to make sure that you're staying fit and healthy. Fantastic. Um, and James, I ask, this, I ask my guests this every time, but I'm um, just wondering if, do you think you've designed your life? I'm definitely a... You know, I, I like to set, try to set things up. I'm not sure if I design my life per se, but I'm definitely a, a an engineer in terms of, you know, trying to think more about my routine. Um, the Power of Habit. I don't know if you've read that book. That's a that's a great mm. book because it does start to say, you know, what are your triggers, your routines, and the rewards that you built, and you know, if, if that's designing your life around thinking, okay, you know, it's the things that I do every day that matter more probably than the the holiday you take in between. Um, and so be mindful about how you spend that, right? Then I'm a, I'm a big fan. Because you know that the more positive role you play in the environment, economy, and society, uh, the better off you'll actually be in business. Um, I, like, I believe that, you know, what's good for the planet, what's good for your customers, your suppliers, and, and ultimately your team members will translate to being good for your shareholders. And, and that's what cap stakeholder capitalism is all about. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Hey, James, thank you so much for being on Design Life Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening in to this episode of our dedicated B Corp series, Business for Good, with the Sender co-founder and CEO, James Chin Moody. Tune to the next episode. I'll be catching up with the brilliant Sasha Tichkowski, co-founder and CEO of the Australian furniture and homewares brand, Koskella. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.